Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And I'm Scott Peterson. And this is episode six of Inside Quizzing a podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. We have an enormous amount of really interesting stuff to talk about today, uh, and I'm very excited, as I'm sure Scott is too, to get into some of this stuff. Uh, we, of course, are coming off the uh, the adrenaline high of a quiz meet uh, at Lighthouse just a couple of days ago, uh, and a lot of really awesome things took place there, so we want to talk about some of the stuff that happened uh, in terms of questions and answers and how the meet went and so forth. Uh, Scott has a list of all kinds of, we'll call, we'll call them Scott's scenarios, sort of non-rules, rules-related things about question writing that are very interesting that we should dive into. And it, as promised uh, at the Lighthouse Meet, at least in, in, in my room, in room three, in our rules corner for today, we're going to be talking about the infamous uh, and highly not known about until just a couple of days ago, inverted deity rule. We've talked about the deity rule before, but we haven't talked about the inverted deity rule because it doesn't exist yet. And I'm going to make an impassioned plea that it does come into existence because of something that happened in my room. Uh, I think it was on Saturday is when it took place. But anyway, we'll get through some of that. And then, of course, through the rules corner, a few additional questions and uh, we want to talk about quiz mastering. Uh, what does it take to be a good quiz master? What are quiz masters required to do? What makes a good quiz master versus an okay quiz master? And uh, talk a little bit about Great West uh, question type requirements. And hopefully we'll be able to get through all of that stuff in the time allotted for the podcast uh, today. So, uh, Scott, I'm assuming you had a similar experience to me at Lighthouse. Uh, I thought the meet went extremely well. It went fantastic. I'm always very happy when everyone does what I'm expecting them to do, as far as all the volunteers and officials, and that happened again at this meet. Lighthouse is a wonderful facility, and they've got some interesting requirements as a facility because we're able to use their sanctuary for half the meet, but then for the last half, we've got to move Quiz Room 1 to a different room. Um, which is a little bit of a wrinkle. But in past years, there's been the added wrinkle of the worship team beginning their practice with heavy kick drumming at about, I think, 4 o'clock sharp. And so we were kind of rushing to get under the gun. And it seemed like we always would have finals go more than two quizzes, and we'd be in the middle of quiz two or three, and then the heavy kick drum would launch from right above our heads. And we did not have that this meet. So that was great that the worship team was practicing, I think, much later in the evening. But it's... Always an, an interesting interesting aspect of quizzing at Lighthouse, but everything else about their facility is absolutely amazing. It's a giant facility. Everything is very modern. They've got wonderful Wi-Fi. The rooms, the rooms are spread out. The quizzers have a place to burn off energy and be super loud that doesn't affect the quiz rooms. So it's really – it's pretty much the ideal place for a meet. Yeah, I think it worked out really well. Uh, in particular, I think the hosts did a fantastic job. Uh, I always feel really guilty, you know, as a quiz master, uh, you know, hosts will prepare some nice little edibles for us on our table. And of course, as a quiz master, I look at that stuff and I think, oh, this would be really awesome to eat, but I can't take a single bite of it because I'm going to start salivating and that's going to ruin my quiz mastery, I suppose, <laughs> if, if that's a thing. And so, you know, I'm sitting there looking the, the entire quiz meet at this beautiful tray of stuff that Lighthouse folks uh, put together for me and lamenting that I can't actually eat any of it. Um, the, the, the most that I can do is consume cups of water, which, of course, they provided 
uh, and were quite yummy. But, uh, I, yeah, I, I really like the layout at, at Lighthouse. Uh, I like how uh, downstairs in rooms two, three, and four, we had that hallway that sort of separated our rooms from sort of the uh, the cafeteria area, the fellowship hall, I think is what they call it. And that was nice because it, at least uh, for most of the quizzing, uh, certainly all the quizzing on Friday and, you know, half the quizzing on Saturday, uh, folks didn't just hang out in the hallways right in front of the room. And so that, that kept the noise down uh, considerably. Definitely. I always, back on the food, I always um, try to scramble for some food as, as soon as I'm done quiz mastering for the evening on Friday. But it's, it's usually a rush to get it before the hosts come and put it away for the evening. And I was able to make myself a plate of muffin and satsuma and candy before I left. Ah, very nice. I ended up pocketing a couple of the cookies uh, for later, but that was about that was about as as good as I could do. I was uh, telling my uh, my scorekeeper answer answer judge Lawrence was in my room uh, this uh, this last meet, and I was telling him, please eat, please consume this for me because I can't. I have to live vicariously through your stomach. So so part of your duty as an answer judge and a scorekeeper is to consume the really awesome food that the hosts are providing for us. Definitely. <laughs> well, I don't know how things were in room one for you, but for me, uh, we still had a little bit of a problem with the, uh, you know, don't enter and exit rooms during a quiz uh, kind of rule. Uh, it wasn't so bad on Friday, but uh, towards Saturday, especially towards the afternoon, I started noticing a lot of folks uh, entering and exiting even during an answer, like there'd be a quizzer jumped in, in the middle of an answer or something, and I'd hear the door open and close, and, and uh, it, was, uh, it was pretty frustrating. I, well, well, you know, I'll continue to announce and request and plead that people don't, don't do that, but uh, uh, it, was, uh, it started to get a little bit frustrating, at least in room three for me. Um, how was it in, in one? It was pretty good in one, especially during prelims in the beginning of the bracket on Saturday, because room one up in the sanctuary was a giant room, the doors were near the back, and the doors made almost no noise. So even if someone was entering, they both weren't exposing the room to noise in the the hall outside or the lobby outside, and there wasn't noise from opening or closing the door. So for all I know, people could have been entering, but I had no idea on Friday, in the beginning of Saturday. But then later on Saturday, once we transitioned the room downstairs, the doors were quite loud when they clicked shut, and there there was some going in and out, but um, I don't know if I've gotten accustomed to it or I zone it out or whatnot, but I'm able to adjust how I'm reading the question so that I make sure I'm not hitting the question beginning right as there's a big noise happening, but there are times where I kind of have to restart the question because of a noise that happened. I know how frustrating it is when you're a quizzer, and I've definitely had challenges as a quiz master because of noise, and those are always really, really tough to arbitrate on because you're left to decide... How significant was the noise? Um, does it warrant tossing out the question? Is this um, an enterprising quizzer who's trying to get an air tossed out on a somewhat technicality, or was it truly a, um unexpected noise? I remember one meet at North Seattle Alliance where the quizzer was answering, and then there must have been an adjoining-type kitchen from beside the stage, but a giant pile of, like, tin plates fell on the floor while they're answering a question and i i did decide to throw that question out because it was quite it was quite unexpected and surprising yeah there was one there was one question in my room where i very nearly uh tossed it out the quizzer ended up getting it um 
I believe they got it incorrect, and I think they it, it was one of those things where you could tell they, they just really didn't know the answer. It wasn't like they were in the middle of answering and got distracted, but we had a baby uh, in the back who, uh, you know how babies are, they're completely fine, totally quiet, everything is wonderful, and then out of nowhere they just decide, I'm going to scream, and they go from zero to ten instantaneously. And I mean, I can't fault the parent for that. I mean, they were trying their best and they exited the room as quickly uh, and as quietly as possible. But that that definitely uh, the uh, the baby outburst happened in the middle of somebody uh, wrapping up uh, an answer. And I contemplated for a moment about tossing the question, but I didn't feel it. It was uh, met that sort of arbitrary subjective threshold. But it's definitely something to keep in mind. I, I felt there were there were more than one occasion, though, where uh, I was feeling like the door, just the door in my room opening and closing, was getting awfully close to that borderline. Uh, and there were times where I would, I think I started a question a few different times where I ended up pausing, tossing the question and starting over. Like I, I had never gotten to the point of actually calling out the question and beginning to, to recite it. But there were times where I would, uh, you know, set up a question, there would be a noise, I would wait, I would drop the question and take a different question uh, because I felt like the there was too much of a distraction in sort of the the pacing of getting started into that question. Because that, that pacing, I mean, and that's something we're going to be talking about in a little bit with Quiz Mastery, uh, but I think that the pacing of getting into the question needs to be consistent between each question. And, and when that gets interrupted with uh, outside influence, uh, something it's something I feel like I want to drop the question and try it again. Yeah, I totally agree. I um, the, There was some noise that kind of identified a personal bias that I have because there was a baby who would make intermittent noise that wasn't very disruptive, but it was it was a noise. And I found myself growing a little bit more and more annoyed as it went on. Uh, but then later, there was a puppy in the back who made a noise. And I was my first reaction was, oh, how cute. And so I had a, a completely different reaction to the puppy than to the baby. <laughs> yeah, a, sl- a little bit of a bias there. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I don't know about your room, um, but in mine, there were a couple of things I noticed right off the bat. Um, there was a quite a uh, quite a number of uh, increased number of no jumps in my room, especially the first couple of quizzes on Friday. I think it started getting better as as folks started warming up a little bit, but there were definitely more no jumps, and I think even some more errors uh, on average than than I'm used to. How, how were things in in your room? It. I, I felt the same as you that there were a lot of no jumps and historically meets three and four do see quite a pullback for different reasons. I think we're kind of in the dog days of quizzing because it's the winter and it was over the holidays and the quiz meets get closer together. And even though I try to smooth the amount of material being learned um, to match kind of the length of time between each quiz meet, because those are variable. Even all that said, it's a lot to memorize, and you do see averages go down quite a lot at meets three and four, and then you often see them tick back up a little bit for meet five because the prospect of qualifying for Great West as an individual or qualifying for district championships as a team is right in front of you, and so that is a really good motivation for a lot of quizzers to put in a little bit more work than they had been putting in. Yeah, and I mean, and and. You know, for folks out there listening, quizzers who are out there listening, uh, you know, take to heart the fact that now is a great opportunity to toss a couple of additional uh, verses into your long-term memory. 
because there are, a, a, you know, I think some additional opportunities to be able to get questions. You know, if, if, if I've got three, four, five no jumps in a particular quiz, that's a lot of material uh, that's getting out there that you have, you know, all the time in the world, well, five seconds, uh, all, it being all the time in the world, to be able to think about it, recognize it, jump, and, and grab the question. There were several jumps, even in my room, where the question was answered perfectly and correctly, but it was jumped on, let's say, four seconds after the, the question completed. Uh, somebody jumped and, and got the question. So there's a lot of opportunities that are, that are out there. Uh, if you just, uh, you know, in these upcoming chapters, 8, 9, 10, and so forth, uh, just, just grab a few extra verses and shove them back there. I couldn't agree more. And thinking about Meet 5, we have roughly 20% of the material to go, but half the questions are going to come from that 20% of the material. The first 80% of the material are going to be the other half the questions. And so the quizzer that really works hard on the new material should be rewarded. And adding on to that, now Griffin, do you happen to know how many points a quizzer gets for a correct question? Uh, They get 20, I think, right? 20 points. That's two zero, a decimal, and then zero zero, right? Yep. So that's kind of a lot. Um, Do you happen to know the amount that quizzers 18, 19, and 20 are separated by in their year-to-date average? I do not, but I have a feeling it's a very tight number. It happens to be point zero one. Wow. And so there are minuscule differences, and that's, that's just one example of 18, 19, and 20, but there are minuscule um, differences between many, many quizzers, and there are similarly minuscule differences between teams, where a team that is just out of dis- district championships may only have to do one spot better than the team in front of them to pass them and move right into district championships. And those realities are also, you know, all throughout the the different teams. And um, it's not intentionally set up to create drama, but it is intentionally set up to reward the quizzers and the teams that work hard as as the year continues to move on and as more and more material gets added. Because it's difficult. It gets more and more difficult. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, naturally the rules are structured in such a way or the or the uh statistics are structured in such a way as to reward uh, you know, increased effort uh towards the latter part of the year. And I mean, and it's a way to squeak out just a little bit more and make some significant progress even from just a small uh, additional bit of effort, uh, uh, just a couple of extra verses can make all the difference in the world. And speaking of kind of squeezing out just a little bit of, a, an, of an, an extra advantage here and there, I wanted to talk a little bit about challenges. Um, I've noticed, uh, you know, I, I took several years off from the quizzing program, came back last year and quiz mastered last year and quiz mastered this year. And I've noticed, um, I mean, it could be my memory, but I don't think it is. I've noticed that there's quite a bit less challenging than I've experienced in years past. And I, you know, we've talked about this in, uh, you know, previous episodes, I, I, I'm pretty sure, but I wanted to encourage folks, you know, I, captains out there, don't be afraid of challenging. Uh, you might even want to consider, this may sound like a crazy idea, but it may not necessarily be a bad idea to set a goal of, of at least trying to challenge at least once per meet, right? Because, I mean, a single overruled uh, challenge in a quiz does not count against you. And if you're doing it politely and respectfully, I, I don't think it's such a bad thing. I think, you know, maybe get in the habit of trying it out a little bit. Um, I'd certainly encourage folks to try to challenge properly. Don't, don't just sort of stand up and start blabbering on about things. There's a certain sequence and a way to do it. 
Uh, but, but I would certainly encourage every captain out there or co-captain if your captain happens to be, you know, quizzed out or, or subbed out or something like that. I mean, if they're, if they're quizzed out, they're still on the platform, but if they were, if they're subbed out or something, then, you know, feel free. Um, but this idea of get yourself in the habit of, of being a little bit more open to the idea of, of challenging. It's not, I, I want to counter the notion that it's disrespectful. I think there's different ways to, to challenge. I think there is absolutely a disrespectful way to challenge and I'm not advocating that. Uh, I, 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 I'm really advocating for the, you know, if you, if you're going to go up there and, and do it respectfully, I think absolutely try challenging and, and practice at it. Um, I'd kind of walk through a little bit about how I think a challenge should go here. So like if you think something is a little bit questionable, you know, like, like if you're sitting there and you're listening, you're paying attention, the, a ruling comes down and you're kind of like, Oh, that's weird. I don't know if I agree with that. Immediately stand, right? You don't have to say a word, just stand. If you're the captain that is, or if you're acting as captain for, for your team, just stand, maybe take a step forward or something like that uh, you know a step towards the center if there if you're in room 1 and there's a mic there you don't have to go to the mic but you can kind of take a step toward the mic or something like that but the biggest thing is just stand you don't have to say a word and just kind of think for a moment take take a second to think about it the quizmaster will see that and will stop and the and you know I, and uh, you know I certainly in my room I'm not going to make a sound. I'm just going to give you all the time that you want to stand there and think. And then and when Griffin, you... What's that? Um, I had a case where a, a quizzer did stand up to challenge, and I didn't notice them. Oh, and right at, okay. And, and right before I went to kind of start talking about the next question, the quizzer said, may I, like, may I challenge? And I was very, very happy that they did. Um, they felt confident enough to make sure that I knew that they wanted to challenge, and they knew that I hadn't noticed them, and I was happy, you know, because... If I had if I had announced the next question type, I probably wouldn't have been able to allow them to to continue with their challenge. Yeah. But they had yeah. they had already been standing and they were looking right at me and then they jumped in verbally when they saw I hadn't noticed them. I thought that, I thought that was really good. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that's sort of the the thing that you do is is when you're ready, uh, or even if you're even if you're not ready yet and you're just you're you're worried Scott's going to continue, uh, jump in and say, "May I challenge?" or "I'd like to challenge." I I, I kind of like how there's this uh, the request of "May I challenge?" It's kind of a nice polite way, uh, thing of doing it. But you really don't have to be that polite. Even you can just say, uh, "You know, I'd like to challenge" or something like that. Uh, the quizmaster is is. I, I, I guarantee you the quiz master is going to be excited about this. Uh, the quiz master is going to be like, yes, cool. You know, may I challenge? Yes, absolutely. Um, then at that point, if you need even more time, go ahead and pause, right? If, if your, if your ideas in your head are still not totally structured, it's okay to, you know, like, may I challenge? Yes, absolutely. And then just stand there for a couple more seconds. That's totally okay too. Uh, because there's, there's no 30 second timeout for your challenge or anything like that. But then when you get to the point of your challenge, I think there's three things that need to come out of your mouth. Number one, say what happened from your point of view, you know, like, well, so-and-so said this or, and then you ruled this way, or they didn't say this and they should have, and you ruled in such and such a way or whatever. Then number two, explain why that matters. Uh, and it could be something like you don't necessarily, you don't have to quote the rule book, but you could make reference to certain things in the rule book, maybe. Uh, you know, I think, and, and you can, you can also not be right. You can say, or not be sure. You can say, I think they said this, 
and I think the rule book requires that or something like that, um, that's all acceptable. Just sort of put that into the context. So number one, say what happened. Number two, say why it matters. And then number three, say what you think should happen. Now, th th none of this is written in stone. The quiz master is going to make up his or her own mind about what needs to happen. Uh, but go ahead and throw in there something about how you'd like it to be changed, how you'd like things to be rectified. You know, I, I think you should, that you counted them incorrect. I think you, they, you, they should be counted correct or vice versa or, you you know, you counted them correct, but I think the question should be thrown out or, you know, whatever that happens to be. I think those three components are a nice sort of mental structure to get you through the challenge. And that's really sufficient, I think, to to issue a challenge. I don't know, Scott, anything you'd like to add there or something that I've missed? Well, going to right to how you ended there, one of my biggest pet peeves when the quizzers challenge is, let's say I, I was deliberating on an interrogative question, how to rule. The quizzer had said lake, and the text says sea or something like that. And I was like, uh, I don't know. And then I said, you are correct. You know, and a quizzer gets up to challenge, and they say something like, the quizzer said lake. It should be sea in the material, um, and I think they should have to say sea. So because of that, they should be incorrect. And my response is, in my head at least, is always, I was deliberating over the exact same thing. You have to tell me why you think these two scenarios are different enough for me to change the way that I've, I've ruled. Like, you're in convincing mode now. Now, there definitely are cases where you are challenging and bringing something to the attention of the quiz master that they did not notice, right, or that they did not do correct. But in a lot of these judgment calls about, did the quizzer give me enough of the information to be counted right on an interrogative, or did they say too much from a different context that would take them out of context that are truly judgment calls, you need to really convince me and tell me why you think they said enough information that put them in a different context or why they gave all the information necessary to be counted correct. And so make sure that you are in, um, you know, convincing, convincing mode um, to prove that to me. And kind of in the same vein, I think it is really important to add what you think should happen. So for example, if after 10 seconds a quizzer had said something and I ruled them incorrect and there's a challenge saying that I don't think that what they gave you was incorrect – um, it's helpful for them, for the quizzer who's challenging, to acknowledge that um, you called them incorrect after only 10 seconds. They still had time left to answer. So while I'm not asking for the, the ruling to be changed from incorrect to correct, I think this question should be thrown out and redone. I sometimes have quizzers challenge and say that the question should be thrown out when, because the time had elapsed, um, I'm really ruling on correct or incorrect. Those are the only options for um, going back and fixing what's happening. But but also in that vein, um, I thought a lot about if I rule thinking about, um, we'll call it aspect A, and a quizzer challenges about a different way to think about aspect A. But while they're challenging and while maybe I'm reading the rule book or looking at the material, I think of aspect B about this scenario and how I ruled and how that should change my ruling. As a quiz master, am I allowed to change my ruling on a basis that the, that the challenging quizzer never even brought up. And I've really come to the conclusion that I want to get it right. That's my biggest motivation. And so I, um, I, I will really try to get it right, even if I'm not specifically accepting a specific challenge from a quizzer. I may change my ruling based off of other things that I have now thought of. And maybe all quiz masters might not do it that way, but I've kind of decided for myself I want my guiding factor to be getting the correct ruling. 
I agree, agree, agree. I, I super, super agree. And that is exactly the same thing that's going on in my mind. I, I want to get it right. I want to get the ruling correct. And I want it to get it, I want it to get to a point where I know that if a similar situation happened in a different quiz, I rule the same way. I want the rulings to be universally consistent as much as possible. Uh, and so, you know, absolutely, if somebody challenges on, on you know, concept one and I discover concept two that's totally different, uh, that, that changes the ruling or, or would cause me to change the ruling, I will absolutely just latch on to, to concept two. Uh, and I've, I've done that several times, uh, in, in, in when challenges have happened in my room where, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll challenge on one thing. I'll be like, nah, it's a weak challenge, but it causes me to think of something else that is actually an extremely strong argument to flip uh, a ruling around and I will end up flipping a ruling around. So that's why I say like, yeah, when you get up there, say what happened, say why it matters, say what you think should happen. And I think that's important because it structures out your challenge effectively. Uh, and it's also a good sort of a, like a one, two, three roadmap to be able to sort of have a nice clean pattern in, in speaking your challenge. You're sort of filling in the blanks. But don't necessarily feel like you have to be 100% perfect. Uh, even if you get, you know, you, you, the, the quiz master starts thinking about something in a slightly different way, uh, you, you've started the process rolling. The other thing is, you know, just before we jump off of this topic, don't feel like massive amounts of thinking time on the quiz master's part or collaboration amongst the officials invalidates your opportunity to challenge. So, you know, somebody jumps, somebody answers a question, then their, their, their time runs out. The quiz master leans over to the scorekeeper slash, uh, you know, answer judge, and they talk for two straight minutes, you know, quietly. You can't hear what they're saying, but for two straight minutes, they're, they're debating and collaborating and trying to figure something out. And then the quiz master issues a ruling. Don't feel like they've discussed everything, right? Like if you think their ruling is incorrect, stand up and express yourself, right? There, there's, there's no really, really, really no harm in doing that. Um, unless you've already had a single overruled challenge already. But given what I've seen so far with the sort of the lack of a lot of challenging going on in quiz, I, I think, I really think you do yourself and your, your teams and really quizzing, uh, a, a favor by getting up there and, and issuing a challenge. I totally agree. Now, Griffin, is it okay that I have many, many more thoughts about challenging? <laughs> I'm sure you do have many, many more thoughts about challenging. Um, I noticed that some quiz masters give very minimal information when they make a ruling, even when they've been deliberating on that ruling. And I take almost the opposite tact. I want to give the quizzer all of my thought process. Like if there's a finish the verse that I call wrong, I want to tell them exactly what they missed or what they didn't include or what they said wrong. If it's an interrogative that I was deliberating over, I want to say, um, no, I, I'm going to call you incorrect because of this answer that you gave that I deem incorrect information. And because of that, because this stuff is not 100% objective most of the time, I'm giving them complete information that they can use to challenge if they disagree, if they think I have applied the rulebook incorrectly. And I think that's I think that's the way it should be done. You know, you shouldn't be forcing the quizzers to guess at why you made your ruling. Um, I don't think that benefits anyone. It just kind of I mean, I guess it could theoretically insulate a quizmaster from. Um, their their rulings being given more look over. Um, but I want to give the quizzers as much information as, as I can for them to be able to challenge. 
I do somewhat of that. I'm 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 very much in favor of of providing as much information as I can, uh, you know, to uh, to the quizzers so they can understand a particular ruling. But what I'm cautious about doing is providing so much information uh, after a ruling that it it sounds as as a definitive i'm not going to change my mind sort of thing like the last thing i want to do is somebody somebody uh, jumps answers a question i make a ruling it's a little on the subjective side i don't want to express or explain my ruling in such a way that it would come across to the quizzers on the platform as like okay griffin's made up his mind I'm not going to bother challenging. I want to give enough information that people understand why I made a ruling, but I want to always leave. Uh, I, I always feel like there's this balancing act where I'm, I'm kind of holding back a little bit just so that if there's anybody who thinks maybe they want to challenge there, there's, I, I don't want to convey the idea that like Griffin can't change his mind. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. And I'll definitely have to think about that because I don't want to give that impression to quizzers that I have, thought about every possible aspect of this and that means that they have no hope of challenging um i you know i want to give the give the impression that i've thought i've thought a lot about it but this is still a subjective ruling that i am making based off of my interpretation of the rule book yeah well speaking of subjective uh rules although maybe this isn't <laughs> i don't know i should that's probably a horrible way of 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 moving on to the next topic because uh, a lot of this is not subjective uh, it's actually sort of um, important kind of nitpicky stuff in the rules that can really kind of be uh, interesting to go through. But this, I, I don't know, we've, we're moving into sort of the Scott scenarios aspect of, of, of our agenda where you've listed these as sort of non-rules, but there's a lot of rule stuff related to them, right? There is. And so every meet, as I'm asking questions, I run across questions that are invalid, poorly worded have kind of a weird amount of information in the answer or any of those aspects that would cause me to mark them and revisit them. And so I'm just going to start going through them here. The so first one that these I... These are these oh. are questions that you, uh, you recited in your room, but then, or, or, or skipped, or, or you encountered them, you marked them as being kind of on the edge, and that's sort of the criteria for, for them going onto this. Kind of. There's actually a million reasons that they could make it onto this list. It could be... There was wrong information. The reference is wrong. It had a wrong answer. It had a typo. That could be one scenario. Another scenario is I think this question is invalid as written. Like it's not a multiple answer. It's an interrogative. It's not an interrogative. It's a chapter reference. Um, so that would be straight up invalid. There are some questions where, you know, I said they went and saw whom, and the answer is Peter, and then Peter said hello to the rest of them. And after reviewing it, I'm like, well, the answer is Peter. I don't think the rest of it is really required as an answer to this interrogative. And so I, I mark it because I'm going to go back and remove that content from the answer. Um, or maybe the specific way that a quizzer answered a question and the material that they gave me um, was kind of a new situation in my head, and I had, I had to take a pause about how I was going to rule about it. So those are just some of the scenarios that might land a, a question on this list. All right, cool. So what's the first one that you've got here? First one is a, I had a multiple answer from 2 Corinthians 5.11 call, and the question was plain to what? And my two answers were God and your conscience. And I caught this one before I asked it because I don't think it's either clear or correct to write plain to what where the, one of the answers is God, which is obviously, well, I'm going to say obviously a person. We can put aside the crazy theological 
implications for now, even though we will revisit those later. But um, this is one that I, I really wouldn't write because I consider God to be a person, and it's most clear to quizzers when um, the interrogative used when the answer is God is a who. But I was wondering, would it be too tricky to write plain to what as an interrogative with the answer being your conscience, as well as plain to whom um, as, as a different interrogative with the answer being God? What, what do you think, Griffin? Well, I – so – I know some people are very hung up on the the interrogative word being absolutely correct, um, and I would agree. God is not a what. God is a who. Uh, your conscience is a what. Um, so the what versus who or what versus whom is uh, yeah. It, it definitely makes the multiple answer here in this particular case a little bit messy. I think for me, I think plain to what is. Um, I think that's a reasonable question, even though it definitely is a little bit uncomfortable uh, and a little bit squinty when when one of those is is God and it's and it and it demands a who. But again, I don't know that I I, I don't feel like um, the the interrogative word uh, of a question is something that's necessarily challengeable. I think it's a placeholder. You know, the what, who, when, where, uh, why, these sorts of things. Uh, I think it's just a placeholder, and we certainly want the placeholder to make sense, to flow. Um, but, uh, you know, to, to kind of take this a step further, could you write the question plain to whom and what? Unfortunately not. You probably could in some other denominations, rule structure, but um, we cannot. <laughs> we can only only add that interrogative word into the verbatim material in one spot and no other changes. Yeah. And I've... I've definitely wanted to write questions that are like, he went to Macedonia, when, why? <laughs> you know, or yeah. something like that, because it flows perfectly in the material, but we're just not, you know, it's not going to be expected of the quizzers. Or, But I think it's interesting, and I, I do agree with you that oftentimes the spe- what the specific interrogative word isn't so consequential. But it kind of leads nicely into this next scenario, which is an interrogative from 1 Corinthians one twenty one, where the interrogative is at the front where it can be very consequential because there are far more who interrogatives at the beginning of a question than what interrogatives. And especially if you're talking about a multiple answer list, a quizzer who's studied a list of um, multiple answers that start with the what interrogative, those might be key on the very second syllable, whereas ones that start with who might be key much later. But this question is who did not know him? And the answer is the world through its wisdom. And um, this is kind of a tough one where obviously I would – like in the last example, I don't think plain to what with the answer being God is a valid question. I would consider that grounds for a challenge. But in this case, who did not know him, the world, I think that works as either a who or a what. I wouldn't, wouldn't call either of them invalid. But I was curious which interrogative word you think would be most clear to most of the quizzers, especially since it's showing up at the beginning of the question. For me personally, I'd call it a what, um, because the world is, it's a thing that's populated. I mean, it's, it's, you could almost call it the, the society, um, the culture, the civilization is sort of, uh, similar to the concept of the world. And so in, in that, I, de- I definitely think it's a, a non-person object. So a what feels a little bit more right to me. But that being said, I, I, I agree. I think, who would be, uh, I would say, equally valid. Makes sense. I'm actually going to skip the next one because I think it's not it's not too interesting. But Oh, I think it's I incredibly ha- interesting, though. I mean, we can do it quickly. 
All right. Chapter reference on 1 Corinthians 6.3, judge whom, with the answer being angels. And I, I just posed the question, is judge what better or is judge whom better? Even though in this case, as a quiz master, I would accept either that the quizzer gave me. But I'm just curious, you know, Griffin, what do you think is a better one? Yeah, I would accept either one, and I very much think angels is a what. Um, now, if you're talking about a specific angel uh, or, like, you know, a specific set of angels, then who might be better? But if it's just angels, then it would be the same as, uh, you know, Romans or something like that. I, I think, well, okay, now I've changed my mind again. Would I say Romans is a what? Mm, okay, well, okay, maybe I'm way on – maybe I'm on, I'm back on the fence again. Um <laughs> I'm back on the fence. I, I, without thinking about this too deeply, I, I really wanted it to be a what, but um, now I'm not so sure. The interesting thing about a lot of these questions is I haven't looked at who specifically wrote them. I have about four or five different writers of questions involved in my set. And so it's not necessarily that this is the way that I wrote it when I was just going through quickly. Um, but it was the way that someone wrote it, you know, at first blush, which is interesting. Yeah. So this next one is an interrogative from 2 Corinthians 7.5, we were harassed how? And I had it just written as we were harassed how, with the answer being at every turn. But the text says we were harassed at every turn, hyphen, conflicts on the outside, fears within. And so when I saw that, and the quizzer had actually continued speaking, and I often won't jump in to cut them off once, even though they've given me everything they need to be correct, I, I like them to quote more material. Um, but when I thought about it, I think that her harassed how, we were harassed how, is a single answer at every turn. And that conflicts on the outside and fears within are, are merely um, a clarification of that single answer at every turn. But I think you could write this as a multiple answer. We were harassed at every turn, how? And then I think that would be a multiple answer. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I would even say it is possible to look at this and think that conflicts on the outside fears within is actually not necessarily uh, directly related to harassed, but more of the but we were. Um, so in a way, you could say, but we were what? Harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, that sort of thing. Um, I could see the argument for that. I think that's a that's a terrible question. Like I like I would never ask, but we were. But I'm just saying theoretically, I see those you know harassed conflicts and fears as sort of three sort of things. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say you know if you're writing a you know harassed uh, where or harassed how uh, at every turn, then I think that's absolutely you know the right answer right there, full stop, interrogative. Uh, and then of course harassed at every turn how. Uh, yeah, I think you could do a multiple answer off of that. And the nice thing is if you're um, specializing on multiple answers, it doesn't really matter the specifics of how this question ends. You should just be prepared for a multiple answer that starts with we, her we were harassed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The next one I have is a pretty common structure, actually. It's an interrogative from Second Corinthians 1.8. We experienced what? And the answer is the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. So it's kind of like the question is embedded in the answer. Um, and my notes are, it's valid for sure, but is it good? Yeah, so this is interesting. Um, this question actually came up in my room, and I read the question. So every time a question pops up, in, I, I use a you know piece of software uh, CBQZ, yay, CBQZ. Uh, but every, so every time a question pops up on, uh, my display, 
I do a quick kind of, I don't necessarily read it all the way through, but I do sort of a quick glance of it and kind of get the basic idea in my head so that when I'm reading it, I can kind of read it at a, at a, at a more structured pace, a more sort of even pace as I'm, as I'm going through the material. And this exact question actually came up in my room and I squinted and I didn't like it and I tossed it out for that very reason. I think it is, it is technically a valid question. I think it's totally straightforward in terms of like, you know, experienced is a key word. So, you know, I, I think it should lock people into Second Corinthians 1 8. Um, and if they've got the verse memorized, it should be no problem for them to just go, you know, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. Boom, they're correct. But I personally don't like questions where the material has to come from both sides of the interrogative. Um, I want a question to sort of flow. So like my favorite question of all time is with the interrogative at the end, and essentially you're starting in on a quote, you end with an inter interrogative, the quizzer just picks up at the interrogative and fills in information. And if they just start there and quote to the end of the verse, they are going to get the question right. That's my that's my most comfortable type of question. And sort of my next most comfortable question is where the interrogative is, is in the beginning, a who, what, where, when, why, or something, something happened. And then the quizzer just sort of supplants or pushes information to the beginning of the, the question to be able to answer it. But I really don't like where quizzers sort of have to split up their answer. They have to kind of hunt and peck around in a verse. And this is sort of where, you know, we've talked about a little bit about this before, where, you know, what I call split multiple answer questions, where which are completely valid. Uh, they're legal in every respect, but, you know, just Griffin doesn't really care for them, and I kind of bristle a little bit about it. So in this particular question, uh, yeah, I think it's completely valid, but uh, I'm just not a big fan. Got it. Let's see, continuing on. Oh, goody. We've got a chapter reference from 1 Corinthians 8.4, an idol is what? And the answer is nothing at all in the world. And my question is, is this invalid because of the new, um, a question is invalid if the question is not answered rule? Um, which is meant to be kind of for the, you know, if the phrase was an idol is not good and you ask the question, an idol is what? Well, the answer is not good. It's not answering what the idol is. It's answering what the idol is not. And the valid question is actually an idol is not what? So here's a case where it's not that specifically, but it is kind of a quote unquote negative in the answer. What do you think, Griffin? So I'm not seeing what you're talking about here. Um, you're in First Corinthians eight four. An idol is. I've got an idol is nothing at all in the world. Yeah, sorry, that that is the scenario. But I was I was drawing a parallel scenario. Oh, so a in parallel this case, to the knot. Okay, right. Yeah, an so idol case, is what nothing at all in the world. Um, so, so the answer is not really answering what an idol is, but what an idol in a sense is not. Yeah. So this is. Okay, so this is where I kind of flip to the other the other end of the spectrum on this one. I think personally, I, I look at this one as an extremely straightforward, uh, easy, you know, question that I think is is completely valid because again, it sort of satisfies the um, if I if I if I don't even understand the material, if I just have words memorized in my head and I go an idol is. Uh, you know, an idol is what, 
I can I can just continue quoting an idol is nothing at all in the world it and I'm going to get the question correct and to me that seems reasonable but I totally understand the idea of saying well it's really not an is it's an is not but I I, I sort of I I get that my my gut feeling though is to say that it's it's fine as written interesting I I dislike that I even have to have the conversation about them because um, I think it, the questions the question and the answer are very very clear. And but I'm left to decide if this new part of the rule book applies or not. So anyway, yeah, and that kind of goes back to something that you know in in question writing and also in question reciting and judging. And we've talked about this before. Uh, I don't know if we've done it on the podcast, but I know you and I have 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 talked about it at at length, uh, and we're on the same page about it. Is this idea of saying the less interpretation a quizmaster can do, the less uh, theology we bring into it, the better. Uh, if we can, uh, even, even the less grammar we can bring into it, the, the better. We're just purely making questions based on the words that are in the text and, and making rulings based on the words that are in the text. I agree. This next one's an interesting case. It's an interrogative from Second Corinthians 4.2. And the interrogative is, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we what? And the reason that I put this on here is, on the contrary, what is a great reference question. And I have it written as a reference question. So this is totally valid as an interrogative. But Griffin, do you think it is okay to write an interrogative that starts this way? It's definitely valid, but is it advisable to write it? Do you think it's the best test for the quizzers? Or would you rather just write the reference that begins, on the contrary, what? And then maybe write this as an interrogative starting after the on the contrary. So what would the interrogative be structured as, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we what? Yeah, you could just start at the by. So, I mean, my, my general question is, um, the first four or five syllables of this question are not unique, um, but lend themselves to a fantastic reference question. Does that fact alone, or both of those facts in concert, make it so that it's advisable to not write this as a question writer, as an interrogative, starting this way? So there's a couple of ways to approach this. Um, so technically, according to the rules, it, it is valid, right? Because it becomes yep. key on the fourth word, uh, I think. Let me just – yeah. It beca- so yeah, it becomes key on the fourth word, on the contrary, by. Uh, therefore, it is a completely valid uh, interrogative question. I can understand sort of two different schools of thought, and I I lean with one school more than the other. So one school of thought says – you shouldn't try to trick the quizzers, which means when you are answering or when you're when you're writing interrogatives, you should try to have the interrogatives become key at, at about the same time. You know, whatever that happens to mean, you know, certain number of syllables, that sort of thing. I wouldn't uh, say that those things are mutually exclusive, though. Uh, true. I agree. I agree. And that's why. And that, and so the the opposite uh, the other school of thought, which, by the way, is the school of thought that I belong to, says, no, 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 you should write your questions in the widest possible, legitimately valid and not uh, confusing way, right? So on the contrary, by is not at all confusing. It's extremely straightforward. You know, it, it follows the Griffin pre- preference of like, you know, start some words and end with an interrogative. And then if you can continue quoting, you get the question correct. Um, all of that sort of satisfies. It just so happens that it becomes key on the fourth word or the, you know, on the contrary by. So the sixth 
the sixth syllable, which is pretty late in, in the process, right? So yep. uh, to me, I think having that variety is important because I don't want quizzers getting into the habit, especially like like if I've got some you know potentially internationals bound quizzers uh, at a district level. I don't want them getting used to the idea that they can jump on the second or third syllable and pretty much always have enough information to be key to answer the question. I want them to be thinking along with the process of, of the material coming out. So I'm very much in that, that, that latter school of saying that it is both a valid interrogative question and I would say even advisable. Well, here, let me pose not a completely opposite thought. Um, so I don't like to use how difficult a question is as a basis for whether I should write it or not. I don't want to side towards writing questions that are easier or harder or side towards writing a, like not writing questions that are easier or harder per se. But I do strive to have every bit of the material tested via the best possible question. Um, so it, it means that every bit of the material may not be tested by every single question type, but every part of the material is tested by some question type. And so in this case, I'm left to decide, is on the contrary what the best way, you know, as a reference question, the best way to test this material, um, which would mean that I wouldn't also write a question starting with on the contrary as a different type necessarily. Like, you, you totally still could. Um, but I kind of compare it to, um, you know, if but the fruit of the spirit is what, well, I'm not going to write an interrogative that is, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, yada, 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 and what, and just leave one at the end. Even though that's perfectly valid, it flows, but to me, the best type for that um, bit of material is multiple answer. That's what I'm going to use to test the quizzers. Um, and so that's kind of the question that I'm posing to myself here. Like, what is the absolute best question to test the quizzers on this material? The best question type that fits um, based on how you know, the, the point of why question types originated in the first place, um, the best question type that flows, and all of that jazz. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I think I would end up just writing multiple different questions. Um, I think on the contrary as a reference, on the contr uh, contrary by uh, what or whatever, uh, the, the, the lengthier question is an interrogative. And then I would, I would definitely be adding things like, you know, plainly we what, uh, and everyone's what, um, you know, uh, by setting forth what, uh, I think could be, could be thrown in there as well. I think, I think the, the key is testing the material and providing the opportunity to, you know, the, the better, the stronger I have the material memorized, the better I'm going to be at answering those questions. I, I definitely want to, you know, have the, a wide variety of those questions, all of them being valid and, and fairly straightforward if I have the material memorized. Yeah, good thoughts. All right, Moving well, on. what's next? Moving on, we've got a chapter reference multiple answer from 1 Corinthians 7.16, and the question as I've written it is whether you what, and just put aside for the moment, Griffin, that this is one of those split multiple answers. Um, but, but the answers are, like, whether you what? And the answers are, will save your husband and will save your wife. So my question is, would you consider this to be too tricky? Since the question that a quizzer could give me, and that flows actually better than the one that I've written, is whether you will what? And that one actually contains a unique phrase and would be invalid as a reference question and would be a multiple answer. Because I definitely, again, I don't want to use how difficult a question is as necessarily a basis for writing it or not writing it. But I also don't want to be overly tricky in the structure that I write these questions. Like this one, 
I definitely you, – you can tell I wanted to write um, a multiple answer, and it looks like I kind of wanted to write it as a reference multiple answer. Yeah. So whether you will what, to me, uh, just seems like – so So I'm a, there's a lot of thoughts going on in my mind right now. So whether you will what, to me, is a valid multiple answer question on its own. Uh, it doesn't require a chapter reference. Um, whether you will is a, is a two-word key phrase to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 7.16. Only yep. happens twice there. Um, you could even add the word save in there uh, if you want it, although, you know, whether you will save, I guess, um, you know, your husband, your wife. Um, but I think whether you will what is probably just a simpler, cleaner question. If a quizzer answered either of those two, I mean, now granted, of course, it wouldn't be a reference, so they wouldn't have to provide the, the question. But if it was a reference question, I think whether you will or whether you will save uh, both for me would be reasonable. Uh, I would I would accept either one of them, but I think I would just a- ask it as a as a straight multiple answer. I don't think I personally would write this question, but uh, you know if it popped up on my screen as I'm quiz mastering, I wouldn't have a problem at all just asking it as a straight multiple answer. I wouldn't either, and that's kind of what my question is: like, is this too tricky as a reference multiple answer as it's written? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I I mean, and certainly I've seen. An, uh, ones that were significantly more tricky. I, th- I think this one's actually pretty straightforward. Interesting, because I was dreading a quizzer, like the quizzer that jumped was one of our better quizzers, um, and unfortunately didn't even come up with the verse. But had they, they could have quoted the verse, whether you will save your husband, whether you will save your wife, I would have prompted them for their question. And I was guessing that they would give whether you will what, in which case I would have to rule them incorrect, because they've given me a multiple answer question and not a reference multiple answer question. Wait a minute. Say that again. How would their question be required to be a reference? Because this is a chapter reference multiple answer as I have written it. Whether you what. That phrase appears in in multiple chapters. Oh, I see. Oh, I get it. I misunderstood. So your question your question was whether you what and, and thus requiring it to be a chapter reference. Oh, uh, yeah. See, yeah. And in that case, I wouldn't I wouldn't write the chapter reference question. I think that was yeah, I would not write whether you what. Um, I would throw in the will so that it's uh, a little bit more straightforward. Yeah, I think that's the way I was citing as well. So then the last one in this little bit is a multiple answer from 1 Corinthians 3.21. All things are yours, whether what. And then the answer that I had written was Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. And I actually ended up just asking this question, even though I think it is a little bit invalid as it's written. Um, but the quizzer jumped on it, and it was clear, and they quoted the rest of the verse, and I counted them right, and we moved on. So I was kind of happy with that flow, but I can at least bring it up now. Do you think it's invalid because Paul and Apollos and Cephas are who's, and the rest of the answers are what's? Yeah, so this kind of goes back to the one, the the I think the very first one or the second uh, question that we were talking about. Uh, I think Paul and Apollos and, and, and Cephas are all who's. But if you're talking about stringing in stuff like uh, world or life or death or the present or the future, I think what inclu- is, becomes inclusive of the who, it's slightly – because, I mean, flip it around the other way. If you said whether who, you could only ever get Paul, Apollos, or, or Cephas. You could not ask I – don't, I, I, don't, I don't think you could squint and have the world or life or death or the present or the future be included. Uh, and so I would be leaning towards saying whether what and then just squinting on the what versus Paul. So it's very similar to the, you know, the what of God um, versus the what of Paul. Interesting, because 
as you can see from how I did treat it, I did squint about Paul and Apollos and Cephas being what. But if I had had a challenge that they are can only be whose, I probably would have accepted that as the challenge and just thrown that and done a different multiple answer. Interesting. So is there a spot in the rulebook that you could point to that would support that challenge, though? Um, I don't think so. Because, I mean, the requirements for interrogatives are pretty vague. You know, they just have to have one of those inter- seven interrogative words or a form of them. They have to have a unique word or phrase in the first five words. And yeah. then it says things like they shouldn't be overly long and or something like they should flow. Um, so I guess technically there's no requirement that the interrogative word has to make sense. But um, in my experience, that's how everyone treats the interrogative word. Now, mostly mostly because of reference questions, but also on interrogatives, people do, maybe not as much as others, but they do scrutinize the word that they are using because they want to make it as clear as possible to the quizzers what's being asked of them. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I, I would definitely not want to say, you know, whether, why, uh, and, and write a question like that because then, you know, quizzers, quizzers would just kind of look at me with the very puzzled looks um, and then maybe throw things at me, uh, after the meet was over. Um, but, but yeah, I think, I think in this particular case, if, if you're writing whether, what, uh, and including a couple of who's in a list, then, I mean, if it was only a set of, of who's, then obviously you don't want to use what, but if you're including some what's and some who's in a multiple answer and you're saying whether, what I, I, I got to think that that's completely valid. I can't find anything in the rule book that would let me overrule that decision. Interesting. And I, I mean, I think I agree with you, but I still would feel, I don't know. I would feel It feels like, icky. It definitely feels icky. But yeah, I think that's, it's interesting. I mean, I think we do treat the rule book as if it's not written, then it's not a rule. Um, but there may be some cases like this where there's some sort of common sense that can prevail without needing it to be um, explicitly and verbatim spelled out as such. But that's also going against almost everything I believe about a rule book. But <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. No, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very much a, of the opinion that uh, if I'm going to make a ruling uh, one way or the other definitively, uh, then, then I have to be able to point to something in, in the rule book to say, this is where this decision is coming from. So, you know, if I'm going to be overwriting something, if, if I say whether what somebody challenges, I need to be able to point to something in the rule book that says, this is what I'm standing on to, to make this decision. Um, otherwise, if it's ambiguous in the rule book or if it's not stated in the rule book, then I have to kind of go with sort of the, um, if you'll pardon the NFL analogy, the ruling on the field, uh, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I think that well, finishes up this section. Well, yeah. And so we are going a little bit long, but I did promise uh, folks in my room uh, in, on Saturday that we would actually talk in today's podcast. And I know several of them are actually active listeners. So hi, everybody um, that, that, are, that are listening. Um, that I promised them that we would actually get to what I'm, uh, what I've dubbed the inverted deity rule, which is not a thing. Uh, it's not real, but I am hoping that it becomes a thing. And so I'll just sort of describe the scenario and then, yeah, Scott, I guess, uh, chime in with, with your opinion about the, this, uh, sort of inverted deity rule. So we've talked in the past about the actual deity rule, what's actually in the rule book, which is, uh, you know, if the answer in context is Christ 
and a quizzer starts with God, they can uh, they have the remaining 30 seconds to clarify to Christ. Uh, and if they say the Holy Spirit, if they clarify to the Holy Spirit or if they clarify to God the Father, they are incorrect, uh, that that is a, a, a directly incorrect uh, answer. So if they get to, you know, 15 seconds into their time, the answer is Christ, but they say the Holy Spirit, they are immediately incorrect. But if they, they say God, they have the remainder of their time to be able to correct and get more specific. Uh, there's also some uh, another section of, of the deity rule that talks about specific titles of the deity, but th that's sort of not germane, so I'm going to skip over to that. Well, what happens if that scenario happens in reverse? So this comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Who will deliver us again? And the answer in the material is God. But the quizzer didn't say God. The, the quizzer actually answered Christ. And, of course, I didn't count them uh correct or incorrect at that point. I just let their time continue. And within the 30 seconds, they corrected and they said God. Well, so at that point, are they correct? Are they incorrect? I mean, there's nothing, and this is sort of the thing about the these this supposed inverted deity rule, because the rule book does not explicitly explain that Christ and God are not synonymous, like you can't be go go from more specific to general, then you have to basically look at look at the word Christ and the word God and say, well, is Christ fully God? And of course, now we're putting on our theologian hats, and of course, Christ is God. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, the son is, is, is God, right? Uh, philus est Deus, uh, pater est Deus, but philus non est pater, you know, and so forth. So, you know, the, the son is God, the father is God, but the son is not the father and the father is not the son. So the idea of saying that, you know, within that particular context of 2 Corinthians 1.10, Christ is technically not an incorrect answer. Uh, it's maybe not a good enough answer, and I, I feel like the I feel, and this is sort of this sort of there's there's my feelings about this, and then there's the actual rule book. I feel like Christ was not immediately wrong, but that the quizzer needed to clarify to God within the thirty seconds, or they would be wrong. But if I go and look at the rule book as it's presently written, technically I think they are actually correct the moment they said Christ. Um, so it gets very complicated. And of course, uh, as a, as a, I, I'm, I'm, you know, full disclosure here, I'm a theologian. I have a master's in theology and my, uh, my master's, uh, was based on a, a dissertation that was written on Trinitarian, uh, theology. So, you know, this is sort of, you know, my home turf here, but as a quiz master, I, I definitely don't want to put on the theologian hat. I want to put on the just the words, the literal words of the of the text, and the words that come out of the rule book, and nothing more. I don't want to get into situations where I have to be interpretive as a quiz master. And so, of course, this question made me feel extremely uncomfortable. So ultimately, what I decided to do was toss the question because I could not find anything in the rule book that allowed me to override 
anything. Like I, I basically, I couldn't find something in the rule book that let me judge the the answer as being correct or incorrect. So I tossed the question and uh, supplanted it with another one. That being said, uh, Scott, what is your, what are your feelings about this um, non-existent, but maybe I hope does exist in the future, inverted deity role? Yeah, well, unfortunately for our podcast listeners, you and I have already talked about this ad nauseum today. So a lot of my thoughts about it have evolved. But I think my first thought was that um, this is similar to a case where the answer is man and the quizzer says Peter or a specific name. You know, And let's say that that name is in context or um, they may not be necessarily wrong, but I'd need them to give the less specific answer. And so in my head, that's what was happening here because – in my head, Christ is a more specific name for God. But unfortunately, when you really break down those two scenarios, they're different because man and Peter are not synonymous. But in almost every way you can think about it, except the letters involved, God and Christ are synonymous. And it's an interrogative question. And the rule book just has the basis for being correct is if your answer contains the information requested. And if we consider two words to be completely synonymous and have no difference in meaning or content, then we accept them as correct all the time for interrogative questions. And this, once you think about it, would seem to be no different based solely on what is in the material. I think it's clouded a lot by the fact that if the quizzer says God and the need to get to Christ, um, you have this sense that God is ambiguous and then getting to Christ is disambiguous. And so you would think that if this is the opposite – there's still some difference there that they need to rectify, even if it's becoming less, even if it's becoming more ambiguous. But it does feel like they should just be counted right once they said Christ based on the way that the rule book is currently written. Yeah, and it seems to me that the whole point of why the deity rule exists at all is to force a specific instance of the deity of the Trinity when one is called for, because I mean, imagine the rule book exactly as it stands right now, but the deity rule is withdrawn. Then I could just say God for every uh, answer that was Christ, Holy Spirit or father. And I would be correct. So essentially the reason we put in the deity rule was to say that God, while theologically correct is not correct enough it doesn't mean you're wrong, but it is not correct enough for you to be counted correct if if the answer is Christ or the Holy Spirit or the Father. And so similarly, it seems to me that in the absence of an inverted deity rule, Christ is technically immediately correct for the answer of God, provided that, you know, God the Father, th there's a lot of provisions that have to be put into this, right? So if, if in context, there was a reference to God the Father, and then God was just sort of shorthand for God the Father, then I think Christ would immediately be incorrect because of the deity rule as it currently stands. But as it, in, in context of 2 Corinthians uh, 1.10, there is no reference to God the Father uh, or the Holy Spirit. There's only reference to God. Therefore, technically, Christ is the immediate correct answer. But I felt really awkward about that. I felt like that wasn't enough like like it, it, it i wanted the person to get from christ to god and that at that point i would be okay and, and i don't know i i think you you kind of came around to the same opinion then like you wouldn't technically christ is correct but you don't feel like that ought to be the case yep and i think this is a this is a scenario where you have to be very very specific about the lens that you're looking at something through 
Because when you start saying things like, I know that the Trinity is three and one, but in this case, I want them to be different. It feels like, you know, you might be after some theologically inaccurate case, but really the motivation is when we are forming a competition and a rule book for any possible scenario that might come up, you have to make decisions. And when you have a theologically tough situation like the Trinity, you have to make decisions about what's going to be accepted. Because like with all other proper nouns, we don't want to allow the quizzer to just cycle through guesses and not be incorrect. And I think that same desire was the reason that the deity rule was written in the first place. You can't just hop between persons of the deity, even if theologically they are equal in a sense. Um, and I think if we desire to write an inverted deity rule, you would have to be very clear about that acknowledgement the same. You know, like this is a desire for the quizzer to accurately demonstrate that they know the material, not necessarily demonstrate that they've ac- adequately wrestled with the intricacies of the Trinity. Right. I would uh, I would not expect a quizzer to wrestle with the intricacies of the Trinity before answering a question. Um, so in terms of this sort of supposed inverted deity rule, how do we what do you think we should do about this? Should, I mean, should we try to kick this up the ladder a little bit or or, or how, where do we go with this? I mean, this is one of those things where I mean, I've been doing quizzing for I don't know how many eons now. Uh, it's the first time it's ever come up in 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 actual answering or or judging of of questions. So I have a feeling like you know it, it, I think there is a hole in the rule book that needs to be patched. But of course, once we spackle it in, it'll never happen again. Yeah, I'll I'll probably raise it through some some channels that I can. In the meantime, do we want to add an inverted deity rule for our district? Potentially, we can kick it over to the rules committee and see what they want to roll out. Yeah, who's on the rules committee? Am I on the rules committee? If you are one of the four quizmasters, then yes, you are. Oh, that's true. I'm auto- I I am I can't not be on the rule. That's a good point. I've been drafted. Very cool. <laughs> so All we're right. going to skip well, over these other rules corner things for the yeah, future. Yeah, we have actually yeah, we have a lot of really cool other things that we wanted to get to in, in including quizmastering was actually something I I thought was going to be really interesting, but we're we're a bit over time here. So we should probably actually close and we'll we'll uh, kick over these additional rules and quizmastering and great great west uh, question type requirements uh in next week's uh podcast. So I guess that's a that's a preview and a teaser for next week's uh podcast. But we're getting really good the, at- we're getting really good at this podcast thing, huh? Well, <laughs> I don't know if we're getting really good or if we're just sort of uh, faking our way through it. But uh, but it feels like we're getting better at it, at least. Um, so if you think that Scott and I are getting better at this podcast, please oh, email no. us at iq at cbqz.org. That is iq for inside quizzing at cbz.org. That stands for christianbiblequizzing.org. And if you think Scott and I are not getting better and are just faking our way through it, please email us at the same email address and let us know. Uh, you can also follow us on tri- uh, on Twitter. Let's see if I can pronounce that correctly. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Inside Quizzing. Yes. And Scott, do you have any other, you want to talk about the website and Instagram? I don't, I, I've never used Instagram. My wife does, but I have no idea what it is. No, we can skip the Instagram for now, but I think always good, good to remind of the website. It's www.pnwquizzing.com. And we did not have our usual material deep dive because it is the first week right after a quiz meet. So we wanted to talk a lot about quiz meet sort of things. So I do not have a blessing or a closing from the material, but I will simply close uh, with this. May God's light shine 
amongst us. And may you be that light on a hill, the city on a hill, uh, sharing the hope that we have in Christ with others. Uh, thanks, Scott. Thanks, Griffin. All right. Night, everybody. <laughs>